0: what would you do if you experienced most unspeakable events as a five-year-old and unpacked later in your life and start really looking into the landscape of the country on the deeper level, the country that we now know as the United States of America? Interesting things are happening on large scale, and nobody is as equipped to share not only her personal story, but what she is standing for right now, beyond being a queen maker. CEO, former CMO, private equity, author, speaker, board director, advisor, performance coach, and now human rights activist and advocate. Without further ado, let me introduce you to Denise Conroy on this Legacy Leaders episode. Hi, Denise, how are you? I am doing well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm so glad that you joined me. I know that is always good. To start unpacking these complex issues that we're seeing that you've been involved, and that we're gonna definitely address with just simple understanding. Where did you grow up, and how did you get where you get today?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in West Virginia. I was uh, I was raised in what was considered to be a pretty aggressive family, uh, or progressive, I should say, but Uh, It was interesting, very progressive, but also supremely dysfunctional. So my father was a very violent guy, was an alcoholic, also brilliant um, and loving too. So again, duality, people can be more than one thing. We are more than one thing, right? And my mother was this just precious, precious soul who was brilliant. And she was an artist. She was artistic and, um, you know, but also had sacrificed everything for her children. There were four of us. So grew up in West Virginia, grew up in poverty. And, you know, as you had alluded to, the defining event in my life was when I was five years old, which there are people all over the world that can say that. I'm not special. My defining event was I was raped by a group of neighborhood teenagers that were probably ranging in age from 15 to 19 um it was a beautiful spring day sun was shining we lived in this crummy apartment complex and my mom let me out to play she had just had twin boys uh we were one of those families that was always struggling always on the ropes she was the sole earner in the family at the time And, but she was off, you know, on this maternity leave that she had taken. And uh, I nagged her and nagged her to go outside and play. She finally relented. You know, the reason why she relented or or it took her so long, my father was so controlling and so overprotective. She knew that if he found out I'd gone outside, she'd be in trouble. I'd be in trouble. The house would explode. Right. So she said, okay, but it's just our secret. So I go outside and I'm playing in this wonderful, you know, green space And these four teenagers come up to me and proceed to assault me in every way possible. And, and when they're done with me, there was one female in the group and she took me back to our apartment door and she got down on my eye level. And she said to me, if you say a word, I'll fucking kill you. And I believed her. Uh, She was big. I was little. She'd already shown me how much power she had. So I walked into the house, like nothing happened. And I distinctly remember thinking that I was ashamed. I didn't want my mom to think less of me because she was my idol. I didn't want to make her life harder. Her life was so hard already. I didn't want my dad to find out. My dad was the type of guy that walked around the neighborhood and started fights with people for very mild things anyway. So if he had found out someone had assaulted his child, he probably would have killed somebody or several somebodies and ended up in jail. So for me, I you know, pushed it down, shoved it down. I kept that secret until I was 43 years old, I never told my parents, my parents are both past, they both left this earth. And, you know, it was really when I went through a divorce, when I was 43, that caused me to start to look internally that caused me to say to myself, gee, I think I've got to deal with this, that was some pretty significant emotional and mental trauma. So that was really when I started to, you know, look back on my life and unravel all the things that had defined me.
0: Wow, what a journey and uh, through that process you stay strong and you accomplish so much beside obviously education but to be also uh, the fortune 500 uh, Cmo and um have be been such a re- re- visible roles but also dealing with despite dealing with survival assaults and PTSD and anxiety uh, without really knowing what what all of that is and how that all accumulate, right? Subconsciously, so when we have a coping mechanisms, it's very difficult and hard to just label it and know pinpoint what that is, isn't it?
1: Yes, and I was angry all the time. My, my go-to emotion was anger, which my therapist taught me. Anger is just a wrapping for hurt. I was hurt. And as I started to do my work, my interior work, I figured out that I was really mad at my mom. I. I remember being assaulted and thinking, why won't she call for me? Why doesn't she recognize, why won't she come get me? Why doesn't she come save me almost, right? Um, and there was a part of me, and I'm not saying this is fair. This is, as an adult, I can look back and say rationally, intellectually, that is not fair. Because she she didn't know, right? She just let her daughter out to play. Um, but for me, I carried all this anger towards her, <laughs> towards my father, towards the people who did it to me. Um, And then the society that sort of, you know, made me push it down. Yes.
0: That is so powerful, again, realization. And thank you for sharing that vulnerability uh, and how anger was uh, also fortunately affecting your personal life right because it's very hard when you divorce when you go through also that roller coaster but also when you know it's like facing yourself and all your demons from the past even though you didn't create them uh you sometimes we just have to accept that we dealt with best we could
1: yes yes and and I also had to deal with my mom used to use this phrase and when I was a teenager it really Kick me off. I did the best I could. I did the best I could because we'd have these knockdown, drag out fights. And that phrase used to just make me just lose it. And now in hindsight, it used to make me lose it because I knew it was true. Right. But it's still so oftentimes, even though we do the best we can, it's just not enough, you know? Um, yes, that's, we that's ourselves. Go ahead, please.
0: Just that's life, you know. Yes, and when we remove ourselves from it, um, what we run into is uh, we kind of, in hindsight inside, it's like, oh, I wish I did this, right? We always think we could do more and could do better, but that the moment we did the best we could, and that is the chain of the events that we're seeing right now that are happening, that are also prompting us to make a huge, a huge impact indifference in the world and definitely focusing on the positive one so with that in mind um do you mind sharing a little bit how did you get with all of this obviously internal turmoil that you were dealing into such a um exponential growth in your career and your personal life to be one of the top cmos of fortune 500 company
1: well it was interesting that defining event while there were so many awful things about it I had so much anxiety, just monumental anxiety that was never treated in any way. Accomplishment became a drug for me. Accomplishment became this thing I quested for that helped me push down my pain, compartmentalize my life, was the ultimate compartmentalizer. So I would just, and, and the, how you know that your accomplishment is a drug is, I would achieve incredible things in hindsight. I wouldn't celebrate them. I'd be like, check on to the next thing. Nothing was ever good enough. Nothing ever soothed my soul like I felt like it should have. So I kept questing and questing and questing. Once I went through therapy, so so I could be just to finish that thought, I could, I was highly functional, right? Highly, highly, highly functional. But inside I was a sad little girl, right? So when I went through therapy, I really had to, and I ended up, I'm on medication. I'm still on medication Um, and I'll, I'll be on medication for the rest of my life, which has been a godsend for me, both that and therapy in tandem. But, you know, once I started to unravel and I started to get brave enough to allow myself to feel my emotions. That was a game changer for me. It was a game changer in my personal life, for sure, because I ended up getting married again to somebody who was worthy of my love, to someone who, you know, allows me to express myself, which I wasn't able to do in my first marriage. I wasn't capable of it. My partner wasn't into it. Um, But it also exponentially, once I started to go through my own journey of self-actualization, I I started my career accelerated tremendously. And I think it's because for the first time ever, I could actually relate to people. I could be empathetic. I could relate. I could not only feel my own emotions and express them. I could, I could actually feel other people's emotions. One of the things, you know, and you might know this from, from your work with trauma, I was an incredible empath incredible. And a lot of that came from my my sexual assault. A lot of it came from growing up in an abusive family. When you grow up in an abusive family that is so dysfunctional, you, you get really good at reading the room, which is a great skill to have as an executive, by the way. Right. So for me, I think that All of these things kind of are a double-edged sword. And I was able, once I went through therapy and dealt with them in a productive way, I could actually use them to great effect. So that was really when my career took off. I became a CEO and started to do all these other really great things. And I could actually have joy about them and appreciate them.
0: That's amazing. And I love how you also use the fuel and how you recognize where the fuel it's coming from. And when we fuel it and accomplish results, but as if coming from a non-obtainable core, right? And it's coming from that anxiety, negativity, whatever you want to call it, eventually yeah. will catch up with you, will drain you, will affect you. And, and, and it's beautiful that you were able to admit, I need a help. Because how many people need a help, but they refuse? Yeah. And as a result, they push everybody, they love them, they care for them, and they suffer longer than they really have to, right?
1: Yes. And it's, it's so interesting you say that. So I, you know people's position or their acceptance of therapy, going to therapy, seeking help for different mental health issues, it tends to be cultural. And so many culturals yeah. eschew it, look down on it. So I grew up, grew up in West Virginia. West Virginia is in Appalachia here in the United States. And it is a very hard scrabble type of a place. People are scrappy. They're, I'll be honest, a little backwards in some ways. I myself have been backwards in some ways, right? And we're tough people, and at least on the outside, right? So culturally in Appalachia, nobody goes to therapy, right? Because that's that's for weak people. That's for pansies, right? And, you know, for me, I think that was equally as difficult as just dealing with my own demons was to get over the identity piece of, oh, our people don't do this. Well, of course we do.
0: Mm. And I love you mentioned that because obviously, as I mentioned to you and for everybody watching and listening, I used to rehabilitate genocide, torture, war, trauma, human traffic, create victims from over 125 countries. And that was my line work for over a decade. When you think about it, that, it's more than half of the world, right? and all these distinct cultures, and upbringing from religion to you name it, cultural beliefs, um, environments, uh, and everything. And mental health, for most part, it's still taboo. And it's still biggest obstacles for people to get better. And right now, what we're seeing, Denise, you're so aware of it. How much just in the United States, so we're supposed to be one of the most progressive countries in the world, but we have the worst epitome of mental health issues hmm. Depression is just the one small fragment of what else is going on there. So what would you recommend and suggest for everybody watching and listening they are deep down know they need to see the help what that means to really step up and seek the help and ask and how to would you advise them what mental health help it is really all about and what not to fear or why not to anymore believe and how to dispel those beliefs
1: that are holding them back. Well, I think the first question I would ask somebody is, do you want to be happy or not? Because I, and I believe most people do desperately now, I don't think happy. I don't think you're happy all the time, right? We are human. We have emotional rides and roller coasters, but I really wanted to feel joy more than I wanted to be tough. I was so tired of feeling tough and strong and people, people still say to me today, you're the bravest person. You're the strongest person. You have broad shoulders I used to love that. And I'd be like, yeah, you know, very macho almost. Now I could care less because I wasn't that tough. When you actually take the time to do the work with a therapist, with a counselor, maybe even go on medication if, you, if that's something you need, that requires an incredible amount of vulnerability. It, and vulnerability is the hardest, toughest thing I have ever Done in my life, trusting other people, which I was not good at, right until I went through treatment, was the hardest and still is hardest thing I've ever done in my life. But the alternative is, and I know this, living a lonely life that's somewhat miserable, right? And mm-hmm. I was not up for that. You know, I got to a point when I was going through my divorce, and this is right before I sought help, you know, in mental mental health treatment. I uh, I was going to kill myself. I had a bottle of Ambien and I was literally going to swallow the entire bottle. And I was very fortunate that a good friend had come over to visit me and stop me. Um, and you know, the hardest thing that I probably had to do was show up at a therapy appointment and say, yeah, I tried to off myself last night. You know, that if, if somebody thinks that's not tough, I've got news for them, right? It's a hell of a lot tougher than walking around with a gun on your hip or, you know, punching somebody in the face. I mean, there are all these very traditional views of what constitutes a tough person or somebody who is brave. I don't think those things are very brave at all.
0: Mm. What a deep, thoughtful uh, perspective. And I love what you said, that toughness, how it's being labeled, it's coming from very strong macho aspects of it, where we talk about physical toughness. And all of the, but we're really now talking about emotional capacity, emotional toughness, emotional health, and able to really step up. And I love that you emphasize vulnerability, because vulnerability is the beginning of all of the healing and all of our understanding ourselves within ourselves, right? Before we can really then relate and connect with others. But with this in mind, obviously, you've been doing amazing stuff, you're a publisher author, you've you're been working um, as advisor uh, and on the board for the companies, and you continue to still perform in such a high level which also wanted to highlight how it's possible with the right treatment, right support, where you have a trusted environment, a healthy environment, right? When you step away, when you're not constantly in turmoil, how is possible to continue to reach that success instead of going up and down um, and having this constant uh, ebb and flow of stops, failures, um, disasters, and disruptions, right? And then, then peaks of occasion successes. Because when most people are kind of in those roller coaster rides because they're super overwhelmed and they cannot really adjust to step away mentally from what they've been knowing for so long. True, absolutely true. And so with that in mind, I'm curious, uh, obviously now you've been involved in something insanely powerful because we're dealing with very complex times. And, and I just love how you carry yourself. You discover something that really uh, made me step back and think deeply because I, I felt like I'm being so strong and cross-culturally, dealt with so many people, being subject matter experts on the global scale. I always think globally. And then I also, of course, can relate and see what's going on locally. But right now, that journey helps you to discover something else. Do you mind sharing what is that and how is this helping you to do what you're currently doing?
1: Yeah. So I, uh, not too, too long ago, watched the documentary, Deconstructing Karen, which is uh, Cyra Rao and Regina Jackson's documentary on white women. And I love documentaries. And it was interesting. I went into that thinking I was a very progressive person. I grew up in a very progressive family, as I'd said. And, you know, I've got a master's degree in political science and an undergrad degree. So I thought I was pretty, you know, I'm good at this. And I watched that and it blew my mind. And I think it showed me, it gave me the self-awareness to say, wow, I've got more work to do. I am not as progressive, quote unquote, as I think I am. And frankly, I am a racist. Like there are racist sentiments that I hold that... I'm going to have to reconcile with, right? I'm one of those people, if you give me knowledge, and I think most people are like this, once you, once I learn something, I can't go backwards. I can't pretend like I didn't learn it. Right. And there are people who can, but I I am not one of those people. So that kind of set me on a path to self self self-discovery in terms of my own racism. I then went and looked at, um, I read the book, white women, everything, you know, about your own racism and how to do better. And, What I found was just, I read that book twice. I mean, I poured through it, like just whizzed through it the first time. And then I was like, okay, I'm gonna read this again because I probably read it too fast. I devoured it. And it just is one of those books. I read that months and months ago and it still is stuck in my head. I cannot get it out. It is that profound of an influence. And what it's really made me understand is that I don't always think that I've made space for people of color. I don't always think that I have allowed them to be their authentic selves. I don't think I've been a good advocate. I don't think I've been a good, I prefer the word accomplice. I've not been a good accomplice and, you know, I want to do better. I mean, in my coaching practice, and I'm really fortunate, 60% of the women that I coach are women of color. And I think what really got me into this and got my, my gears grinding is I saw the pain that was inflicted on them every single day, in their work environment, in their personal lives, in the world. And remember, I told you, I'm an empath. So I'm sitting across from somebody who's hurting all the time. And I was like, damn, there's got to be a better way. I've got to be able to do something. So that's what's fueled my journey. Um, What I've gotten involved with recently is I've got to know Syra and Regina. We are organizing an event. Uh, It is a gun ban and buyback event in Denver on June the 5th. And what's really amazing about this, it is really the beginning of a movement. What is amazing about our movement and makes it unique is that for the first time, number one, we are being led by BIPOC women. We are being led by Black, Brown, women of color, Indigenous women. And we, meaning white women, white women in our movement are getting off of our butts for the first time ever, and I really mean that in modern times, and actually putting our money where our mouth is, right? We're admitting that we've not done enough. We can't outsource this fight. Our children are dying every day. And by the way, I don't have any children, okay? I That just didn't happen for me. And I don't have any children. I am a gun owner. I own, I live on a farm in rural New Hampshire. So I own probably 20 guns that sit in a safe, largely untouched most of of the time, unless I'm bird hunting or shooting trap or skeet or clays, but I am willing to give my guns up. My guns are not such a part of my identity as a human being that I think my hobbies and my feeling of safety should trump your kids or our kids collectively as a society. And so we are gonna ask Governor Jared Paulus to not ask, let me rephrase that. We are gonna demand that he ban all guns in the state of Colorado and that he initiate the most expansive buyback program in the history of this country. And we have a lot of naysayers, people that say, oh, 5 million reasons of which we've all heard before of why this can't happen. And I don't agree. I don't think we have ever used our imaginations in a way that would allow us to envision a world where we can send our children to school and actually have some level of confidence that they'll come home again. You know, they say that the absolute measure of a culture is how you treat your children. We treat our our children deplorably in this culture. And so for me, And I, you know, I'm a pragmatist. I look at this, I might have 25 years left on this earth. Okay. People in my family don't live very long. I'm 51. So I want to use my 25 years if I'm lucky that I have left on this earth to make it a better, more secure place for future generations and for the current generation. So, you know, we need every white woman specifically that we can get in denver on june 5th we are going to it it is you know akin to it's not a protest it's not a rally it is a demand for action we are peaceful we are you know we are white women in our lululemon our yoga pants we bring our oat milk lattes right um some women are going to bring their children but the reason this has to happen with white women is we have power we won't get shot when we turn out to demand something, whereas women of color, and we know this, they're, they're you know, instigated violence against them. They have been shot when they've turned out to protest different things. So we we are not that. We want to use that power of whiteness for the first time possibly ever in our modern times for good. The other thing I want to say is we we talk a lot about the Second Amendment and what a bedrock right that is. The Second Amendment is rooted in white supremacy. You know, there is a dog whistle, a propaganda machine that will have us believe that it's about holding our government in check, right? We're balancing against tyranny. I don't believe that. I don't at all. I think anybody who is a well-read student of American history can look back on our history and know that we have always felt uncomfortable with giving, seeding, any amount of power to black people specifically. And now that expands into brown people, AAPI, indigenous, you name it. So I think that the entire reason that we have the biggest stockpile of guns in the world and we do nothing about it when people are killed from them is because at our heart, we are convinced that that is going to keep the balance of power in place between white people and non-white people. And I just don't buy it.
0: I am so impressed um, as someone that does not have a children either, but is by, is an educator by heart and always will be, right? It's so important to look at what we're teaching generations currently and new generations to come. And I just love that you found ways also now with the awareness, with your amazing education degree experience to step up and it's different as you mentioned for someone who owns the guns and owns them responsibly for very different purposes with very different attitude and approach versus for someone who is not very well emotionally mentally capable to really know when and how to use it and it uses for very different purposes as we're seeing we became the mass shooting mecca unfortunately we just started this year we just completed the first quarter and we superseded everything that happened previous years of of the sheer volume of incidents and ways that it's just unbelievable we're even having six-year-old bringing gun to school numerous times and educators and principals warning um system in education and was nothing done until he for the fourth time brought the gun and then shoot the teacher When you see highlights of the stories like that, you're wondering, it's like, who is responsible? Yeah. Why would- (laughs)
1: We are, sorry to interrupt you. We are.
0: Please continue. We are a society's community, yes. And, And the question is, how we are calling each other accountable, right? And how do we move forward together with solution that we know that needs to happen?
1: Yes. And how do we allow space for change? We're in this environment where you have somebody like me, you know, I worked at the Outdoor Channel. It's a hunting and fishing television network based in Southern California. I was there for eight years. I worked closely with the NRA. I worked closely with all the gun manufacturers, the National Shooting Sports Foundation. I can respect firearms and I can also, though, change my mind and say, what we're doing right now in regard to firearms, in regard to access, it's not working. It is time for something to change. But we have this thing in our society where people aren't allowed to change, right? Think about politicians when they run. Oh, so and so is a flip-flopper. They're a wishy-washy person. And it's like, if you think I'm wishy-washy, good. I don't care, right? Because you know what I care about? I care about kids, That's what I care about. I care about an old lady, myself, who wants to go to the grocery store and not be shot because somebody comes in and annihilates an entire, you know, populace in a grocery store. So I just think that we have to be able to leave space as not only as individuals, but as a society to say, you know what, I've thought, I've rethought this and I've changed my mind. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes, and more we know, as you said, it's harder to go on old ways, yeah. and it's harder just to pretend that we're not aware of it.
1: Exactly. So
0: with that in mind, you mentioned event that is coming up in June, what you will be asking from Governor Polis, obviously I'm here in Denver, uh, I will be definitely uh, supporting you uh, and others, and would love to, because that is historical monumental um moments in the history and the time for all of us. Absolutely. Because as you said, we have to try something we've never done before. We have to come with joint forces, and we also have to know
1: what we stand for, what we're asking, right? Yep. And we have to use our imagination to imagine a world where we can be empathetic. I think we have allowed ourselves, and by the way, book banning, banning of TikTok, in my, and I just wrote about this on LinkedIn this morning, in my opinion, There is a segment of folks who don't want us to read books. There is a segment of folks that doesn't want us to be on TikTok because those sorts of activities expose us to other people around the world who don't look like us, right? And when I read about people who aren't like me, I develop empathy for them, right? Even though, you know, I live in a very white community, but I can read about somebody in Ghana on the other side of the world And I can start to empathize. I can start to actually see what their life is like and perhaps maybe start to reconstruct my thinking. And I think that's why we're at a very dangerous place right now as a society. And and it really is time for us to start using our brains
0: and our hearts. Uh Absolutely. We have to have a strong emotional and mental um, choices and decisions, but also really have to know implications. And this is really a really great point that you mentioned here. How is it possible with people that are super smart, educated, capable, able because I'm often asked, I'm from Europe, Isabella, how, how is this possible that is this happening in the United States? Yeah. And I always pause and I always think before I respond. And it's one of the hardest things to really say, you know, because ultimately this is how we're perceived around the world and we can't hide it anymore. We can't deny it anymore, issues that we're having and so many issues that we need to fix. So what would you say, what would you recommend to someone that is asking that very same question, either here in United States or anywhere else in the world, watching or listening to this episode,
1: so they know what not to do or what to pay attention to? I think pay attention to the narrative that's being pushed. You know, the other side, the folks that push guns on us, the folks that, you know, uh, push some of this... um, frankly fascist type behavior if you're banning books right if you're not wanting to teach real history in in school that's fascist behavior and fascists don't all look like hitler by the way i think people think that to be a white supremacist or fascist you are a goose stepping nazi right who's who's dressed up and looks off putting and look you don't have to be i mean you can be an everyday fascist or a nazi and you can look like me You really can. So I think that, you know, the first thing to do is to really start to use our imaginations once again, to imagine the world that you want and then go after it okay? But you can't do it by yourself. That's the problem. We all sit here in our houses and we say, oh God, this is overwhelming. It's the traditional, it's the the typical cognitive dissonance, right? In the face of so many stimuli, I will do nothing. I will sit here and I will be stultified. So I think that we've got to use our imaginations to imagine what we want. And then we've got to unite and we've got to work together. The movement that I'm a part of right now is so extraordinary. It's only been officially going for about two weeks. We are literally, I'm blown away at how far we have come in two weeks. And it's because everybody is, we've dropped the line and you hear so many women, white women, especially say, oh, I don't have time for that. I'm crazy busy. I'm raising my kids. I'm going to work. And I'm not arguing that everybody's crazy busy. Our society likes it when women are overwhelmed. Because an overwhelmed woman is a woman who doesn't stand up for her children being shot. She's a woman who doesn't stand up for her reproductive rights. So to me, I don't deny it. But what I've loved about our movement thus far is we're all crazy busy and we get over it and we make time for what matters. And this action, this direct action, this demand from Governor Paulus that he stroke an executive order to ban guns and buy them back, it matters to us. So when I look at the women that we've got, you know, in the movement right now, and we're just getting started, uh, you know, I'm, I, get, I get goosebumps to think about what we can achieve. So never, ever dismiss what committed people can achieve. That's where power comes from.
0: That's a brilliant. And I love that. Uh, and you have in such a short period of time, just around two weeks, how many members right now? I'm seeing some like a 250,000 or something. Is that right?
1: Yeah, we're shooting for 25,000. That's our goal. We've already got in terms of signups, 10,000 women. So we are moving and we are moving fast. And that doesn't, you know, the 10,000 women, while it's great that we have folks who have RSVP'd who are going to sign up and we want folks to RSVP. We want to be able to get a count. We're already initiating discussions with Governor Paulus and his team, but we come hell or high water, want 25,000 women in Denver. and what i would say to anybody who wants to get involved please go to the website here for the number 4 thekids.com and really really sign up look at our proposition look at you know the theory behind what we're doing and also turn off the brain the part of your brain that says what about this and what about that and you know the things that tell you this is impossible because we've all done it before and it's time for us to put that in a box tie it up with a bow and go on a new path.
0: I love that because we have to try something different in order to come up solution, solutions from things that we're already doing over and over, obviously are not working. And we know the definition of insanity, right? As, and how do we actually can sleep peaceful at night without worrying about It's going to be another mass shooting, not only in schools, but in any public places. And and we have to be operating in the fear. And um, how do we consciously decide what matters? To me, this movement is not about politics and which side we're on. It's more about what really is at the core of the problem. So when you look at that, what would you say for all the white women? But in general, everybody watching and listening, what would you say to them in terms of to take action? What would be this core message?
1: Why we need this change? White supremacy is the problem. Okay, and again, we want to think that white supremacists are not us. We white women, who I will talk to specifically here, we have power because we have very close proximity to power, which is white men our husbands, the men we work for, the men we work with. And we know that, you know, our society is a patriarchy, but for the longest time, I and many women just think it's a patriarchy. They don't talk about color. Let's start talking about color. Color, I know, and race is very uncomfortable, but until we start admitting and talking about comfortable, tr- uncomfortable truths, and this is not about, I want to say this, it's not about shaming, it's not about good or bad. You know, what I love about Syra. Row in in our movement is I will say there are no heroes or villains here there really aren't right? I mean, one day I can act like a hero and the next day I could act like a villain. That's the duality of human beings. So we are not looking for perfection here. In fact, we'd prefer if you weren't perfect because we white women are really, really good about forcing perfection down our own throats, forcing it down our fellow white women's throats because it's a way to keep, we keep everybody in line when we do that. We also play a game where we say, well, I'm neutral or I'm being nice. Nobody needs your niceness. Right, I've played that game too. I was in a sorority in college, which was almost like going to white supremacy school in a lot of regards. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of ashamed to say it, but I'll I'll own it and I'll say it. But I think that the the real message here is just admit that you're white. Just admit that you know everything in our system. And God, I didn't create the system, right? You didn't. You know, you didn't create it. None of us created it, right? It's been happening for centuries. But we if we can admit what it is, call a thing a thing then we can fix it together. That's all we're looking for here. I'm not looking to make people feel bad. I'm not looking to punish anybody. I just want to have you say, yeah, I'm aware of this. And then we start to work on it. That's what we need.
0: That is so powerful. And it's so interesting because conversations like this, a lot of times if you're not exposed and don't have diverse neighborhood. Diverse education system, diverse workforce, diverse um, exposure in church, whatever it might be, multi-ethnical, you truly don't know anything else than that. And, And as a result, you don't understand others' people pain, others' people suffering, and you feel completely disconnected of rest of the, not only the country, but truly generally rest of the world. Absolutely, absolutely. And times are changing. And I know for a lot of people that is very uncomfortable. And I remember years ago, I had a beautiful arts exhibit addressing situation, horrible events uh, at Dafur in Sudan. And I will never forget this beautiful Caucasian couples that came in and, and wanted to have a private exhibit with artists, which I was one of the artists. Kids never seen the black people. And they lived in Colorado in gorgeous, beautiful mountains and beautiful ski resorts, but they did not see the Black people. And seeing a whole exhibit around the Black people was a shocker for them. Yep. Because they never seen anybody with such a dark skin. And we're talking about photos. And then we're talking about, you know, a few people that were in audience representing Sudanese culture. And to me, I was like, how is this possible to live such a sheltered life that those kids really for first time are consuming that? And some of them are privately schooled. Some of them really don't go anymore from or not have a need to leave this beautiful ski resort or a private property or whatever might be the case. And it's so interesting. And when, and when you have that parallel, it's
1: like, wow. It is really, really amazing how opening ourselves up to other folks who are not like us, and also opening ourselves up to just being aware about ourselves. Like admit what you don't know, right? And, and admit what you might like to know. And it's it's funny, I lived in Atlanta, and Atlanta is just amazing. Atlanta is such a diverse city. It's by far the most diverse place I ever lived. And God, I mean. I just felt like it was such a richer culture, thanks to all the different, you know, diverse groups that were there. Now I live in very white New Hampshire. And while I love the outdoors here, I love having a farm. I miss so much living in Atlanta, right? I miss the food and the neighborhoods and the culture and just the way of talking and being. And I don't know, it's, it's, it is a pretty beautiful thing. I think another thing that's tough for Americans on that front is we don't travel abroad a lot. And when you have the opportunity to travel abroad, which a lot of other folks in other countries do, you know, they, in fact, they take it really seriously, right? I've worked for some, some, you know, companies in other countries and um, it does broaden your mind. Like, it's funny after the pandemic, I looked at my husband, we used to travel internationally a lot and go on vacations, really cool vacations. And I was like, oh my God, I'm like, we've got to go on a vacation out of the country because I really miss meeting new people like there's something about meeting different people checking out different cultures that like i don't know it it sort of really satisfies my brain and i don't think i'm alone in that i think there are a lot of people you're definitely not and you're speaking
0: with one of those world travelers but it's so beautiful because every experience enriches your life on so many levels on human level on that empathy compassion love kindness and just experience right but that embrace connectivity and and how we are ultimately all as one doesn't matter where it is and that just human non-verbal language that we have when we truly genuinely want to connect and it's like we don't even have to know who's saying what we just know if we intuitively are understanding one another and and just set up to have a phenomenal experiences. Yes. And fortunately, the landscape that we're seeing today is bringing in a lot of harsh realities. And with that in mind, what are your thoughts on how much this particular event, which we'll definitely post the link for everyone that is listening and watching, so you can register, you can donate, you can support if you cannot physically be there, because I know that you're having so many responses uh, of viewership and people interested and, and uh, wanted you to participate in whatever sh- way they can. Yes. And I know that we still have a few months ahead, but um. What would you say was one major contributing factor for this movement? And also, what would you say, what are your deep down desires for implication for the change? Because I really feel like this monumental effort is going to also be monumental
1: on global scale as well. Agreed. And I'm so glad you say that. I know you have a global audience. Um, And one of the things that's been really phenomenal is as we get this movement off the ground, we have had tremendous interest and activity from women in other countries. So it's funny, one of my uh, fellow accomplices is up in Canada. We've had women from the UK. We've had women from all around the globe reach out, want to be not only attended, but be a part of it, right? So I'm just, I don't know, I think it's a pretty beautiful thing when it's not even their country, right? This isn't their problem, but they care enough and they have that empathy. They've used their imagination. So that is so needed, you know, of all the things we need the most, we need, you know, butts in Denver. So we need as many people in Denver. We say we want 25 and I'm going to be honest, I'm an overachiever. I told you about that. That's a problem. I'm working at it, but I'd like a hundred thousand. Okay. I want as many white women, everybody's welcome, but especially white women. I want us to put our money where our mouth is. I want us to take some accountability and make this happen together, Right. And I want, I want as many women as we can get. So that's the first thing we need. We need people to go to our, our website and RSVP. Second thing that we need is, you know, and I will say about attending, understand that, you know, not everybody can afford to get on an airplane and go to Denver and pay for a hotel and all that stuff. We are looking at some options there. We're looking at buses maybe that can come from nearby states. So even if you're not in Denver, we want to actually, you know, make it possible for there to be an accessible way for you to get there economically. The other piece that we really need, though, is we will need, uh, you know, folks to donate money. And what we're trying to do right now is we're coming up with a list of all the different needs that we have. We're going to need a medical tent. We're going to need, uh, you know, uh, to pay for those buses that we're going to have people come in, you know, with. So the the notion of being able to, you know, have folks donate money is important. And And honestly, too, if you can't do money, And not everybody can do money and we recognize that you can, you know, help us get our message out on social media, social media being viral. That is very powerful. So to be able to just share our posts, comment on our posts and our, and our content, that is, that's like gold to us. And that is really, really important. Um, We're also going to have merchandise. So for people that, you know, want something and want to buy something, we're going to have t-shirts and all those sorts of things. You said, you asked the question, and I'll answer that. What, what is our end goal? This is just the, the tip, tip of the spear. This is the, the very beginning. We are looking to make this a model for Colorado in terms of executive orders banning gun violence uh, or banning, banning guns and buying them back, I should say. Um, but we are gonna hit every blue state eventually in the United States. And we're gonna demand the same thing. We wanna show that there is a very, very different environment for those governors who step up, do the right thing, exercise some moral courage and integrity, okay? We wanna show what, again, you're using our imagination and then they're showing what it's gonna look like when we can actually have our imaginations come to fruition. So we really wanna do that, but I would say on a bigger scale, even beyond that, and that's pretty big, if we can be successful, and I fundamentally believe that we can together, we want to take this and apply it to other social justice issues. So could you do the same thing in these states with reproductive rights? Could you do the same thing with some of the assaults that are happening on trans folks? Yeah, you absolutely could. So we think that we are putting together a model, a playbook for this sort of action in, uh, for other social justice efforts. Oh my
0: goodness, that is so powerful, and I love, as you said, that is the blueprint for other activities that need to take a place, and this is just the beginning, and I'm so glad to hear that, uh, because you don't want to lose the momentum after you build it, right? No, I also absolutely. want to ask him, watched earlier your T-shirt. You have a really powerful T-shirt. And if you don't mind, for everybody watching and listening, share uh, what else you also fight in and what else you strongly believe in and why it's so important in today's time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my T-shirt says 1973. 1973 was the year that Roe versus Wade was uh, put into action. Uh, it was approved by the, the Supreme Court, that banner case. And, you know, it has always been something that is very close to my heart. I grew up in a very Catholic family with all the guilt and the shame that comes with Catholic Catholicism. And uh, I'm not a practicing Catholic these days. For me, I just I know too much. I'm not passing judgment on others. It's just I know too much. And I, I just that's not for me. I will say, though, that um, never in my life did I think I would need to get an abortion. But because I am a white woman who has a ton of privilege, I'm affluent. uh, When I had just found out, I was 43, my husband had cheated on me. We'd been married for 20, almost 21 years. And I found out I was pregnant. I had been on birth control. There had been times when I had tried to get pregnant earlier in our marriage. And I had just, you know resigned myself to the fact that I was never going to have any kids I was kind of you know going hard and heavy after my career so I I told myself I didn't care found out I was pregnant and literally within a week of finding out I was pregnant found out my husband had cheated on me and I learned about so many parts of his character that that quite honestly I had pushed down I had I had made a choice to ignore I I saw them and I think I just, you know, sold myself the fantasy. So when I had my eyes wide open after, you know, he he had had an affair, I really had to think about, you know, do I want to be tethered to this man for the rest of my life who has verbally abused me, gaslit me, um, you know, all these things. And I made the decision that I did not. Um, that I did not number one think that I wanted to be tethered to him I'll also say I was only about a month off of my my suicide attempt and I did not think I was the most stable person in the world that's an understatement so I made the choice I was living in Knoxville Tennessee I was the chief marketing officer at HGTV it was October of 2012 and I made the choice to have an abortion I showed up at the abortion clinic there were two at the time I believe two or three in uh, Tennessee and you know. Paid my $500 because um, I had the privilege to do it. And I was eight weeks along approximately. So we got it, you know, had, had went and gone in pretty early. And it, it turned out to be a horrible experience, not because of the wonderful people that worked at the clinic, but because I was so early in my pregnancy that surgically the doctor couldn't get it, just couldn't, you know, couldn't complete the abortion And she said, this happens sometimes when you're as early as you are. So I ended up taking, um, she said, just to make sure that this has been a successful abortion, we will um, give you the abortion pill. We'll give you the drug. And I said, fine, took it. It was so traumatic though, because I went through it once and I was like, okay, I'm done. And then I had to take the pill when I went home. And so when I look at what's happening right now, right? Right. And I undoubtedly, it was a hard decision for me, but I made it. And, and I can tell you unequivocally, it was the right decision. But that said, it really opened my eyes to privilege. And it really opened my eyes to the economic realities of women. And we are not equal. I mean, I will tell you, I was 43. I was by far the oldest woman in that waiting room behind the the, the main door, right? We're all sitting there in our in our hospital gowns. And we had a girl in there that was 13. We had a girl in there that was 14. They were all women of color, young ladies of color. I was the only white person. I was the only person who was my age. They were all kind of looking at me like, Jesus, like who let grandma in, right? But to be really, really fair, it was an eye opener for me because no, nobody at 13 should be forced to have a kid, you know? Nobody at, at, at four. <laughs> I shouldn't be forced to have a kid, but children certainly should not. So this has become a really, really important issue for me. So I'm very closely watching this issue with uh, Texas and the the ban of the abortion pill, uh, because I'm, I'm watching it for two reasons. Number one. When I look at reproductive rights, I just I, I think it is absolutely ludicrous that we don't think women are adult enough to make their own decisions about their body. And I think there is a, a fair amount of nefariousness there. I think a lot of that has to do with wanting to hold us back economically, wanting to keep us in our place, right? Um, especially women that are women of color. I would also say that though, if they, if a state, in this case Texas, has the power to strike down the authority of the FDA on a drug that's been available for 20 years, okay? What might they do to strike down the EPA? What might they do to strike down the SEC? Think about all the ramifications of that. So, you know, it it does go back to fascism. What times are we living in here? Um, And and it's funny, people will say to me, well, I don't wanna talk about abortion, that's political. No, that's a human right. Human rights aren't political. They're not. They're just, they're just not, right? Human rights are not political. Trans rights are a human right. They're not political. The right to send your children to school so they don't get shot, they're not political. But they do all have one thing in common. And that underpinning, once again, and I'll 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 be redundant and repetitive, is white supremacy, right? This is all about keeping us in a system and keeping some people at the top and everybody that doesn't look like us, the white folks at the bottom. And that 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 is something that I just I cannot abide by.
0: Mm, such a powerful share, and thank you again for sharing from your personal journey and choices you had to make, and also choices that if you have to make today, what different implications they will have, and how they're affecting women um, that are survivors of rape and survive being victims of assaults and all kinds of. Uh, issues that we see not only domestically happening, but also in working environments, and also overall as a society in the times that we live today. So with all of that in mind, obviously, you did phenomenal work. And in And cause, and I just really want to ask you, what is the next in your bucket list? I know you have this strong activism and human rights advocacy that you are going to raise this flagship to end of your time. But what is there for that? Would you like to not only yet still to accomplish, but also that is your legacy because you're already living it and leading with that, which is great example for everybody watching and listening. But what is ultimately there for you, Denise, to say, I did it not because you're overachiever and then because you know you can, but that it will satisfy your heart and soul. And, and really fulfill your mission though why you're here.
1: Yeah, it's, it's honestly, so I launched my own business as an executive coach and advisor in November of 21. I left my third CEO role, largely because I was tired of looking around the room and being the only woman. And frankly, I had just turned 50. I was still the youngest person, which was amazing to me. I don't think 50 is entirely young, right? Um, and so when I think about my legacy, I started my coaching practice to focus exclusively on putting more women in positions of power, the C-suite, the CEO role, and the boardroom, okay? And that is my mission. I've got 400 clients right now, all of different, you know, they're in different programs with me, but I want more women of color specifically, but also women who look like me. I want us to have the equity and the parity that we deserve. I want us to have pay equity. I want us to have title equity. And I want us, quite frankly, having more skin in the game, running more of this country, because I frankly feel like if we're running more in a business climate, and let's be fair, not just in America globally, right? But I really feel like we are missing our gender's perspective, not just our gender. We are missing folks who are not, you know, of our gender. Right. And I'm not talking about men. I'm talking about people who are, you know, who identify in different ways. Right. But, you know, I want more, not just the traditional heterosexual white men in these roles. And that'll be my legacy. You know, we've got, I think, 2% of CEOs worldwide are women. That's pathetic. Right. I'm in that 2%. That's pathetic. So 60% of my clients right now, as I said earlier, are women of color. I want to catapult those folks with my knowledge, with my experience into the C-suites and the boardrooms all around the world.
0: Thank you for listening to Legacy Leader Show. If you enjoyed the content and had a positive experience, then please leave us a positive rating. In addition, leave us positive review whenever you are listening on whatever platform there might be. Make sure your friends and family also know about the benefit and value that we provide and what we have to offer. Cheers.